Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only and does not replace your own financial, tax, legal, or financial product advice. Hello Australia, welcome to My Millennial Money. I'm Glenn James. Thank you so much for having a listen today. If you are new to the podcast, welcome. Please make yourself at home. If you're an old hand at this thing, you know the deal. Sit down, strap in and uh, let's have a good chat. Today we've got Paul Benson, who is a fellow podcaster. He's got a podcast called Financial Autonomy and we talk about a few different things in this podcast episode. We want to talk about P2E ratios and we're going to talk about some examples. We'll talk about gearing, debt recycling. We'll talk about what investments to use for each strategy, how shares make money for you, how to build an investment portfolio. I'm going to have a lot of fun with Paul and we can't do this podcast without our episode partner and that episode partner today is Open Trader. Open Trader is designed for professional investors and those who want to invest like a pro. It's about informed decision-making, having the right data at your fingertips in a form that you can quickly understand. You can customize your workspace to suit your investing style and access live feeds with the app to get the latest stocks you're interested in. So thank you to Open Trader for getting behind My Millennial Money. And it was actually funny in this episode, I actually used OpenTrader when I was uh, chatting with Paul about different shares and when we were researching the P2E ratio. So thank you so much. And if you love the podcast, jump into the Facebook group, follow us on Instagram, give us a review, all that stuff. I'll see you guys soon. Paul Benson from Financial Autonomy. Welcome back to the show, Paul. Hey, g'day, Glenn. Thanks for having me on. No worries. Now, let's just get into it. Is there a stigma around investing in shares still? And do you think that's changing? Like, you're a little bit older than me. You've been a financial advisor for some time. You know, we know Australians love property and we know that people will blindly walk in and buy a five, dollars $600,000 property without doing much research, but they'll freak out about putting $5,000 in share market. So do you think the stigma is changing? Yep. It's, it's, it's a generational thing in my experience. So, you know, I still have people come in and if they've, uh, so perhaps they come in and they're in their 60s, for instance, and they've never invested before, maybe they've got an inheritance or a divorce or something like that. Uh, yeah, they'll still come in with the, the old sort of perception, oh, shares are risky and, and it's, it's, it's a form of gambling and this sort of attitude. Uh, but I don't see that at all in the younger generation. And I think it's because of all these fantastic apps and, and, and ability, the way young investors now can get into the market and get exposure for relatively small amounts of money. So they can have a try, they can have a go, experiment a bit, and, and, it, and it's just breaking down those barriers. So yeah, I think that that perception, it's still present in the people in their 50s, 60s, 70s to some extent. If, if they haven't had the opportunity to invest when they were younger, it's kind of too late. But I think for younger people, in my experience at least, no, it's, it's, it's past. 
reading into the psychology of society, do you think we can draw parallels between that older generation? Like someone in their 70s may have had the one job for life with Telstra or with the bank or whatever mm-hmm. and changing jobs or changing uh, has inherent risks. So you get your one job for life. Now, all of us pretty much under 40, uh, we're not in the one job for life. Like I'm into my third fourth career right now so do you think risk is more inherent in younger people yeah it's interesting because because that circles back a bit so you say risk but you know as you touched on there earlier people they don't have trouble all right spending x amount on a huge hundreds of thousands of dollars on a house and yet oh well is a five thousand dollar share investment risky some people would think so so i think the younger people are maybe appreciating that in fact it's not that much risk and particularly some of these convenient apps i mean the intention with investing ideally is you're putting money in that you're not going to need for multiple years but Mm. what we can see is it's so easy oh something changes uh i want to buy this on the weekend or something well you hit sell and you've got your money back uh depending on what you're using in in hours or at worst a few days um so that's it's really liquid and it's so so i guess yeah from a risk point of view i don't know that people are kind of viewing it that way yeah and i guess it it does come back to education right and like i've got a little raise account and uh, i've only recently got it actually because i wanted to get into the raise rewards (laughs) (laughs) and this is not sponsored but um it's just good because you know i think i've got i wouldn't have more than a hundred dollars in there (laughs) like it's literally just there but it allows you to literally put your toe in the water and by toe, put your pinky in. Like, you know what I mean? Like, yeah, and you just tiny. start to yeah. feel and understand. And a lot of people say, well, when do I move from Rays or Spaceship or whatever? Well, it's like, you will know when it's time because you will start to research and learn more yourself. And the great thing is, you know, it's circling back a little bit, but as I say, it's really hard if you in your 60s or 70s and then you get a lump of money and how am I going to invest this? Of course, it's daunting to go, oh, well, I'm going to invest it in shares or, or potentially even property. To get that experience now, as you say, things like raise small amounts of money, even if you blow it all up, you've still had that fantastic learning that then equips you later on when you do get the inheritance or something else is going on. You go, okay, I know how this stuff works. Like it's, It really is fantastic, that opportunity, I think now. Yeah. And last year, it really was, you know, it sucked, you know, with lockdowns and whatnot. And as we're recording now, most of Sydney, greater Sydney, I'm in lockdown. I think Gold Coast, Brisbane is in lockdown. You know, Melbourne's had its fair share of lockdowns. We've had plenty of practice down here in Melbourne too. I think, you know, looking at the share markets last year, and I want to do this um, as a live example. So if you're not driving or if you're laying in bed or whatever, I've just got my Apple phone up. I've hit stocks and I've opened the ASX 200, which is the AXJO index. Now, I'm just putting it to two years. And you can see that on the screen, Paul, that big cliff. Mm-hmm. Now, it's a great time to understand investing markets because over the last two years, if you just didn't touch your super, if you just kept pumping your investment portfolio, there wouldn't be a problem. You wouldn't be telling people at the weekend barbecue or at the cafe that I lost all my money in shares. But if you did sell at the bottom in February 2020 out of fear, well, you would have done your ass. So I think, yeah, I think you're right. It it is changing and these apps are making it more accessible. Mm. Mm. 
And, and only slightly related, and I don't know that it applies so much here in Australia, but just while I was eating my lunch today, I was, I was watching a presentation about Robin Hood. You know, they just had the IPO mm. last week, the trader there in the US. They're making more money off options trading than shares these days, which is interesting. Wow. So over there, the traders, they've, they've got so comfortable with shares that that's not aggressive and, and perhaps risky enough, and they've moved on <laughs> from shares, and now they're doing options over the top of shares, which is it's a leveraged way to trade shares, right? So I know. Amazing. Yeah. And if you, if you do want to listen to a deep dive, I think uh, the week before last, we did a campfire chat with Ivan, the CEO of Open Markets, and we actually spent some time at the back half of that episode about options and puts and calls and all that, uh, if you want to go back. And we will swing back around with Ivan and maybe get a bit more deeper for those who want to understand that. But conceptually, your book, Financial Autonomy, and... You know, I'll put a link in the show notes for anyone who wants to grab a copy. And you were nice enough to send me up, I think, 10 copies last year and we gave a heap away to listeners. You've kind of got this pronged approach. So you set your goals, manage your cash flow, you know, buy stocks, buy property or become self-employed. Doing either of those or all of those will enable you to gain choice, aka get financial autonomy. How, how's the book gone? Like any word on the street, like good feedback, bad feedback? Yeah, the feed, feedback's been really good, uh, and it's certainly, as you touched on at the start. I mean, I, I you know put food on the table, oh, financial planner. That's how I make my living. Mm. And uh, yeah, the book's been fantastic. You know, number of new clients we've had. Oh, how did you come across this? Oh, well, I read your book, uh, which mm. is perfect. You know, because then they kind of know where we're coming from to begin with. So yeah, no, very happy. And I don't know, are we allowed to say, Glenn? What? What? How, how, how's your book? Is that oh. is that a secret, or are we allowed to talk about it? No, no, no. A few people know about. It. I don't want to talk about it too much, but. Only because people are sick of hearing about it and we haven't really launched it yet, but um, the media copies have been printed and, um, you know, they've gone out to media under embargo and all that stuff. So, yeah, it's it's pretty much ready to go. But it was interesting, Paul, when I, when I was writing the book, I was in New Zealand and I actually took your book to copy it. Just joking. <laughs> <laughs> no, no we'll so, go, with, go with the key resource. I understand. Yeah, that's right. Well, you know, you've got to build on the stuff that's there. Yeah. yeah. But, but the reason I took it with me was, you know, I wrote my chapter on shares, for example, and investing. And what I then did, I then went back to some different books to see what they wrote and what you wrote about it, because I didn't want to write the same that people have covered because I wanted it to compliment. But I was pleased to know that all the stuff in your book is actually different than my stuff. Like, and what I want to talk about today is maybe a little bit around, um, you know, direct shares and we can talk about um, how people conceptually can make money with shares. And then, you know, in your book, you talk about P2E ratios and how they work with valuing a stock mm. where I didn't get into the weeds that much. I got more into the weeds around, you know, maybe ethical investing and asset allocation and all that. So it's a great book and, it, you know, and I wouldn't promote crap that I think's rubbish. So again... Uh, support Paul and what he's doing with uh, with the book if you are into reading and he's got an audio book. But, you know, conceptually, how do we make money with investing in shares? Sure. Well, I mean, your return on shares is two components. One is the growth, so the, the appreciation in value, the increase in value over time. And the other is the dividends, the income flow. And I guess 
you can compare that, I suppose, to property, where property you get rental is your regular income and you expect to get growth in the value over time. So two components to your returns. Uh, in terms of the capital growth, the interesting element about that from shares is that there's some logic as to why they should grow because most companies, they generate a profit, they pay a portion of that profit out as dividends, but they keep some of that profit and reinvest it into the business. So your your shares do have a natural you know, logic to why they should grow and increase in value because of those retained profits, those retained profits being reinvested. Perhaps they're used to acquire a competitor or something like that. For instance, as, as we've seen uh, uh, perhaps with, with Square taking over Afterpay just this week, um, you know, so, so by retaining profits, they're able to do transactions like that or else they're able to invest in new products, new marketing, these sort of things. So there is some logic as to why your shares will grow. Now, of course, that doesn't mean every share grows because not every business is successful, but but that's why you have a portfolio and you diversify. And it's interesting because like the old school thought was I'll keep my money in cash and just get interest from the bank account because, you know, it's secure, it's stable. But sure, that was cute maybe 15 years ago when interest rates may have been 7%. Mm. But nowadays the interest rates are rubbish. So you're not really getting a return but there's actually never a chance of the cash to grow itself where if you buy one share, that one share will produce a profit, but that one share will also increase in value on top of the profit or dividend, right? Mm, mm. And, and I think what you're touching on there too around the fact that cash is paying nothing, that, that, that sort of relates to, you know, you mentioned raise earlier and this sort of stuff. I think increasingly people are like money that they might have sat in, in cash in the bank in the past, they're parking it in their raise account or something else like that just to get a return and to see a bit of growth. Because, mm, yeah, exactly mm. as you say, there's there's just no reward for cash anymore. Yeah, it's it's it's, it's interesting. But, yeah, certainly th- there's your return. It's your dividend income. So that that's kind of nice because it gives you a bit of stability. Even you don't always get capital growth. It's a cyclical kind of thing. Sometimes it's down. But you can just sit on your shares and, and accrue the income. And generally for Aussie shares at the moment, if you have a bit of a diversified portfolio, you're picking up 3 to 4% income plus franking credits, tax credits as well. International shares is probably more like 2%, depends on the portfolio you've got. But relative to what you can earn in cash, that's pretty attractive. So yeah. just the income alone is a good deal. That's right. In your financial planning practice, like if you had a client that just wanted to focus on you know, investing in shares and you might set them up on a platform, is your personal vibe you know, a model portfolio of ETFs or do you have like a direct equity portfolio? How do you manage wealth for, for some of your clients? Yeah, typically we, we use a core satellite approach. So we have a, a core, which will be a, a like a low cost index fund sort of blend. Uh, and, you know, it just depends on the person's degree of risk and time frame as to exactly what that blend looks like. And for some people, we'll just stop there. The core does the job. Uh, but I guess as the portfolios get a bit bigger um, and depends a bit on the interest of the investor, then we'll add some satellites to it. So things like, you know, you touched there on ethical earlier or different themes, different uh, angles there, and it could involve individual shares uh, in that satellite. But yeah, you're trying to have a core that might be 60 to 80% of the portfolio that's really nicely diversified uh, and pretty low cost. Yeah. So when we go back to like looking at researching individual companies, right? And let's just say the top 300 companies on the ASX or top 200, you know, one of the first easy things to look at is the PE ratio, the price to earnings ratio. I was wondering if you'd be kind enough to maybe give us some practical examples 
of, you know, when we see a PE ratio of 17, when we see a PE ratio of 11 or 32, whatever that is, what does it mean and how do we make sense of that? Yeah, yeah. No, that's good. I think that is a really good way. If, if you're interested in individual stocks and uh, trying to understand what to buy, understanding how uh, the PE ratio works, I think is really valuable. And it's not like there's a particular PE ratio that that's good and another PE ratio that that's bad, but it's about looking at that ratio and then reflecting on, oh, well, what's that telling me? And does that does that make sense to me? You know, So the PE ratio, price to earnings. So if you had a stock that said it was a PE of 10, then that means you're paying 10 times that earnings, or you could think about it in years, right? That one year's earnings, you're paying 10 years worth to get that one year's earnings. So typically, companies that where their earnings are growing quickly, the PE will be higher because, of course, this year's earnings, next year it might be double that, and the year after that it might be double that, right? So if the earnings are going up rapidly, you'll typically see a higher PE ratio versus a company where the earnings are fairly flat, you'll tend to see a lower PE ratio. So for instance, BHP at the moment, which of course iron ore is going great. So they're, they're having a, a great time. But at the moment, their PE ratio based on expected earnings for the 2021 financial year, which of course has just ended, but they haven't reported yet. So they should be pretty accurate. PE ratio there on BHP is 11.2. So you're paying 11.2 times its earnings to buy that stock right at the moment. If you compare that to ResMed, which is a more growthy sort of company, uh, it's trading at a PE ratio, expected 21 results of 50.5. So you can see there, you know, a much higher PE ratio. So what that's telling you is, as an investor, you're paying a much higher price for the income that that company's generating. And therefore, it's suggesting that the market believes that that income is going to increase by quite a lot. I mean, roughly about five times more than BHPs is going to increase just based on those PE ratios. So if you're looking to do individual investments, you can think about that and think, well, do I agree? Does that does that resonate to me? And and, and you might conclude, I think that's ridiculous. I think BHP's a bargain at that price. Or alternatively, you might conclude, well, I think ResMed's got fantastic prospects. Their, their profits are going to go through the roof. And yeah, I'm happy to pay 50 times because that's going to look really smart in five years' time. And will the PE ratio, Paul, will that change daily with the share price? Yes. Yeah, cool. Yep. So it's a moving number, everyone. Yeah, because it's the price over the earnings, right? So the price yes. is moving every day. So it's a constantly moving thing. And there is, I guess to, to your point earlier, it depends a little bit which earnings you look at, right? Do you go backwards and say, well, how much was the earnings last year? Or do they forward look and say, well, what are the expected earnings for the current year? Generally, depends a bit on the time of the year, but especially at this time of year, you know, they're looking at 2021 results. So the financial year has ended, but the company hasn't actually announced the profits. So the 2021 financial year profits should be pretty predictable. Um, so mm. we'd normally use the forward-looking uh, estimates for, for right. sort of more usefulness. Mm. Oh, interesting. But mm. then again, like the PE ratio, uh, it's not the be-all and end-all, is it? Like no, it's just no, one not. component. Yeah, but I, and, and, and I guess that's where I'm saying you you're looking at that to just get a bit of insight and to just think about where it can be particularly good actually is if you're looking at the same businesses in the same industry. So say for yeah. instance, if you decided, all right, I want to get some banking exposure in Australia and we know we've got the big four banks and it's a question of, well, do I buy CBA, ANZ, NAB or Westpac, right? You could look at the PEs of each and then think about, oh, so 
I, I mean, I haven't looked at them, so I'm just making these numbers up, right? Mm. But let's say, you know, Commonwealth was at a PE of 15 and ANZ was at a PE of 10. Well, then ANZ's 50% cheaper relative to its earnings compared to CBA. So you think about, well, do I really believe that CBA uh, is that much of a better business than ANZ? And maybe you do because you like their technology or whatever your reasoning is, um, but maybe you don't. And so that can inform you as to, all right, well, I'm going to put my money, I'm going to buy this stock instead of that stock, right? Okay. So as a um, another practical example, let's just do a comparison. Do you want to pull up the PE ratio of Rio? And then we'll have a look at Rio versus BHP. So Rio's PE based on expected 21 results is 6.3. Wow. It's cheap. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, and, we're not giving advice here. Maybe it's not. No. Well, <laughs> and this is the reason why I'm, I'm about to, um, I wanted to use this uh, commentary and then 11 on BHP. So if you are interested in digging up stuff and investing in companies that dig up stuff, you know how we had the National Tour and Open Trader was our show partner for the mm-hmm. National Tour? Because I've just got their Open Trader account uh, platform up. And the reason why I thought I'd do the comparison, because they've got research in the platform, like a lot of brokers have, right? Yeah. Yep. And, you know, Rio, their rating is a strong buy. Mm. So... BHP is just a buy. So looking at maybe what the company's doing at the actual PE ratio, like if Glenn James was about to invest in shares uh, in a company that digs up crap, I'd probably be looking at Rio over BHP at the moment. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The other interesting thing, a PE of 6.3 is really low, right? Very. So partly what that's telling you is investors don't think the profit that Rio has made for the financial year just ended is going to be repeated, which mm. probably makes a fair bit of sense because Rio is a far less diverse business than BHP. It's much more yeah. reliant on iron ore and yeah. iron ores had ridiculous prices. So mm. again, it yeah, it really gives you that insight. But yeah, it's a great example. Compare Rio, BHP and Rio, which one of those am I going to go? It's probably yeah, going to be Rio. And think about, think about what makes the most sense there, you know? Well, yeah. and then looking at Fortescue, FMG, you know, well, I've got my... And obviously, the PE ratio on Open Trader is the one that's uh, looking back. Is that what we worked on? Yeah, I think so. Yep. Hang on, I'll just get it so we've got the direct comparison. See, FMG, 5.3 PE ratio. Yeah. So actually, even cheaper than Rio. Yeah, yeah. On that, on that measure alone, you know, there's other yeah. factors. But cool. I mean, on the, the aggregate recommendations that I'd imagine that Open Trader have, they're saying that the, um, the rating is a neutral, like it's a hold. Yeah. So, FMG is interesting actually because it's forever like the researchers we use. I don't know that I've ever seen them have it as a buy, and yet mm. it's had this extraordinary run. Anyone that was in it has has killed it. They've made five hundred percent in the last five years or something, and oh, yet none wild. of the researchers ever have it as a buy. It's very very frustrating. <laughs> this is dangerous. This episode, Paul, because it makes you want to just go and buy a heap of direct equities, and I don't really do that. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, let's do one more comparison for fun. Uh, do you want to look at some uh, banks? Yeah, I don't know. Well, what if we pull up? Well, I said before, Commonwealth Bank and ANZ, right? What if we yeah, put up those two? Yeah. So, Commonwealth Bank, PE ratio is 21.2, unexpected 21 results. 21.2. Let's have a look at ANZ. Yeah, and I've got 17 from last year. Yeah. ANZ, 13.6. 
So that's a massive difference, the relative value of Commonwealth Bank to ANZ. Mm. So the market is saying they've got a much higher expectation for the outlook for Commonwealth Bank and therefore they're prepared to pay a much higher multiple of earnings than uh, – sorry, I might have said that wrong. They're prepared no, to pay a much higher multiple of earnings for Commonwealth Bank than they are for ANZ. It's, um, yeah, it's quite extraordinary. And interestingly enough, the aggregate rating on this open trader account is a strong buy for CBA – uh, but just a buy for ANZ, which is weird because I was looking at CBA uh, through SelfWealth and their research says it's they believe it's overvalued by 10%. So, there you go. It, it's just one of those things. You need as much information as possible. And I wonder, Paul, like if we kick this can down the road a bit like, and it's like, okay, well, I want to start investing, you know, what do I do? And it might be that, well, I'm just going to put... 80% in a diversified ETF, mm. happy days. And then the 20% that I want a bit of hands-on because I've got personal interest and all that. Because it, it gets the point, like if we're going down the top 200 of direct shares, you're going to be getting a, a dart and throwing it against the wall. Mm-hmm. But maybe it is more like a, well, what are you interested in as a person? What would you like to spend some time researching out of personal interest? Because I believe as an investor... If you are doing direct equities, it can't just be a money play because for me personally, I'd never directly invest into Afterpay because I don't believe in what they're doing. I don't believe it's of good. I think it's of harm. Likewise, people might not directly invest into a company that's heavily in coal, for example. So mm. any comments on you know filtering out uh, maybe some satellite funds in our portfolio? I mean, I still think your starting point for the satellite is to go funds, as you just said, you know, go ETFs, because you can get thematic ETFs um, that can can give you that satellite exposure without you picking individual stocks. The other element too is if, at least to begin with, generally, you're focused on the Aussie market, and as much as there's lots of companies listed on the Aussie market, there's you're a bit limited in choice, at least in terms of uh, industry sector. You know, there's not a lot of technology, I guess, is the most obvious element of that. Um, I mean, that's changing, isn't it? I mean, self-wealth, mm. I know um, you can increasingly you can do US shares. I'm not sure uh, open market there, are they, are they doing US shares as well? Oh, I think they will be. I think it's on the horizon. Yeah. 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 So, you know, that, that's improving. And yeah. I was just going to say, and, and so that makes it to me more exciting because then if you can buy some US shares, then, you know, if you're an Apple lover, you can buy yourself some Apple shares. If you're every second day on Amazon ordering something, well, go and buy yourself some Amazon shares. Microsoft, NVIDIA, whatever floats your boat, right? Spotify or whatever. So, in fact, I could be... Oh, no, Spotify is listed. Um, yeah. But, uh, yeah, it's, it's a bit easier to follow a lot of the things that we use every day if you can get into the US market. Yeah, but then you've got to be like, well, if I'm going directly to the US, I'm going to have to fill out their IRS tax forms every couple oh, of years. So it's, Pain in the ass. yeah. Yeah, that's right. So, okay, it, it, it's just one of those things like work out a diversified fund and, you know, I use uh, a good example is the Vanguard Diversified Growth Fund. It's 70% growth, 30% diversified. Like that's a pretty small, smooth portfolio. Hold it for long enough, we'll do exactly what's on the box. And, you know, the more fun and sexy our investing is, 
the more it's not investing. <laughs> but I guess that that circles back, and this is sort of what you said earlier, or just just now. Um, you know, the idea of those satellites, right? So mm. if, if you've got your core is something, yeah, like a Vanguard fund or something like that, that's that's really diverse and and, and low risk. You know, you can have a bit of fun with a few of your satellites. Why not? You know. Um, yeah, like one of my satellites is um, Invocare Limited, right. and. You know, I got it at a good time. I've had some growth and I just think uh, because they're like the major license holder for uh, cremations and funerals and all that in Australia and Singapore and we're only getting older. So, and this is not advice, I'm just sharing what one of my satellites is. <laughs> it's just out of personal interest, I hold yep. some shares there. Like for no other reason. I, I scratch that itch. Yep. Um, but I've just got the view in my life, Paul, that I don't do more than 10% of my... In- entire portfolio in direct shares uh, because it gets a bit too much like gambly, gambly, glenny, glenny. Uh, <laughs> and we don't want to be, we don't want to be gambling with our shares now. All right, fair enough. I want to talk about LICs. What's an LIC? A listed investment company. So and why would I use an LIC? Yeah, good question. So what would help here is just a little bit of chronology, right? So LICs have been around forever. I think the first one in Australia is 1924, thereabouts, right? So a long time. And they were kind of the first funds, the first things you'd get into where you buy one of these LICs on the Australian share market and then they'll hold a portfolio of 80, 100 different shares. Uh, So they were a good first step and then managed funds come along in, I don't know, the 80s or so. And they kind of had some improvements on LICs. They weren't listed on the stock market. The problem with LICs is that sometimes they didn't trade for actually what they were worth. And managed mm. funds really solved that issue. They also made it easy for you to add and get money out. I mean, it, it took a little bit longer than what shares did, but you didn't have to pay a whole lot of brokerage. And brokerage is cheap these days, but it wasn't always the case. It used to cost hundreds of dollars just to do a single trade. And so, you know, that was a bit of a problem with LICs. Managed funds solved that. So managed funds solved various things, but generally they're probably a bit more expensive. Uh, They had their own issues, right? And they're still relevant today, managed funds. But the next evolution really was exchange-traded funds, ETFs. And and that's what so many of us are familiar with today. Uh, And so that's been the progression. And today, ETFs, very much like managed funds, but they're listed on the stock market. So they're back to what LICs used to be. And that works because brokerage is a lot cheaper now than it once was. But ETFs still share the mechanism with managed funds that if there's more people that want to buy than sell, then they can create new units. And if there's more sellers than buyers, then they can cancel units. And so in that way, they can make sure that the ETF trades for actually what the underlying portfolio is worth. Now, LICs, they don't have that mechanism. So when they start a fund, they might go out and raise whatever, 20 million, 100 million, whatever it is. And then let's say if I buy into this LIC, XYZ LIC, and then three years down the road, I want my money back. I've got to find someone to buy it. So I, I sell it to you, Glenn. Now that portfolio, I might've put 20 grand in and that por- portfolio has maybe, you know, the underlying investments that the fund manager bought. I might've put 20 grand in, it might be worth 30. But if Glenn's the only one that wants to buy it and he only wants to give me 25 grand, well then that's what I've got to take, right? There's no way for me to say, all right, well, the underlying investments are worth this. I want to realise that value. I've got to, with an LIC, I've got to find someone else that wants to buy it and accept whatever price they're prepared to pay. Now, for the really big LICs, that's kind of okay because there's enough buyers and there's enough sellers that they find 
the right price and the, the LIC providers will put on their website, here's what the true value is. So everyone's got a reference, right? It should be worth $10 a share. So you can look at it. Sometimes they're a little bit lagged in the, uh, you know, they'll have the net asset value they describe it as and it can be a few weeks or even a month old, but you still got a pretty good reference point. So the big ones are pretty good at being accurate, but some of the smaller ones, not so much. And, and if you've got a minute, I had a bit of a look just as an example. I was looking at different smaller LICs and, and, and one I yeah. saw there and, and look, you know, I don't want to pick on these guys particularly. It applies to lots of different ones. But there was one there I saw called the Fat Profits Global Contrarian LIC. Oh, sounds sexy. What's the ticker? FPC. Now, the net asset value on that as at the 28th of July, so quite just in the last few days, uh, was $1.36. But the share price is a dollar twenty. Now, there could Bargain. be a bit of difference. It could be a bit of a difference because you know maybe there's a little bit of tax embedded in there. But it really doesn't explain the difference, right? So, although the underlying portfolio per share is worth a dollar thirty six, if I wanted to sell it, all I could get is a dollar twenty. Now, you're right. You could say, all right, well, as a buyer, that's cool because I'm buying, I'm spending a dollar twenty and I'm getting a dollar thirty six as value. Except that one day you're going to have to sell, and mm. who, you know the gap's probably still going to be there, right? So. This is the challenge with LICs. So to your question about, you know, do you buy them? Do they make sense? To me, when you've got ETFs available, I don't quite see why you'd go an LIC. Like I don't see what an LIC gives you that an ETF doesn't. Maybe there's an argument that it's stickier money, so in a down period perhaps it holds up a little better. Mm, I haven't seen a lot of evidence of that, but it's an argument. I mean, if you had them already, I probably wouldn't sell them and trigger capital gains or anything, but... Personally, I, I, I don't see great need to be buying LICs. I'd I, I just buy an ETF instead myself. Yeah. How do you feel about them? Well, it's, it's funny. I, I did cover it in my book for housekeeping. And like I basically said, in the money world, you know, you're either for them or you're agnostic about them. I'm probably more agnostic about them. I don't care. Uh, mm. And I don't own any myself. And I don't see me uh, buying any myself because, yeah, it's just... You know, and I get that there there could be ones that um, they might be doing some cool things. And if it isn't clear, like Woolworth is a listed company and how they make profit for their shareholders is they buy goods and sell them and, you know, make some money while doing that after they pay staff and rent. Uh, where an LIC, how they make money for their shareholders uh, is buy companies for cheap, maybe sell them or just hold on to them and, and reinvest and buy other companies. So, it's just horses for courses and um, yeah, I, I really, I'm pretty agnostic and I don't see myself owning any anytime soon. Mm, mm. No, I think we're on a similar page there. Well, we're going to take a quick break and we'll come back and I want to just talk to Paul about gearing and debt recycling and maybe what investments we use with each strategy. And remember, if you do want to uh, buy Paul's book, you can do so. There's a link in the show notes and all profits goes to Paul's pocket. (laughs) (laughs) If you're after personal financial advice, don't get it from a podcast. If you would like help based on your own personal situation, head over to sortyourmoneyout.com. Click get help and we'd be happy to introduce you to one of our trusted advisors. Our panel of advisors, mortgage brokers and accountants work with clients all over Australia so they can connect with you wherever you are. That's sortyourmoneyout.com and click get help. We're back gearing and debt recycling uh you actually mentioned in your book that it fascinates you where people go and buy property with 100 percent debt uh but will freak out about leveraging into equities 
And I must confess in recent times, I've been thinking the same thing. Like I never used to uh, recommend in my financial planning business uh, gearing into equities more so because I didn't want the stress of people ringing up, freaking out. I, I just thought I would like to sleep more than my clients. And, um, you know, we just kind of did bread and butter stuff, but it's a legitimate strategy uh, for wealth creation. So what, what's your view on gearing and uh, maybe debt recycling? Yeah, it, it, it is super interesting. And, and we actually, as part of the financial planning process, obviously, Glenn, you've had plenty of practice at this, but, you know, it's important with new clients to have a good discussion about attitude towards risk. And, and so one of the things we talk about there is, well, how do you feel about borrowing to invest? Because it's a good good to get a read on people's attitude and their aggressiveness and their, their comfort with volatility. And I had this discussion just on Monday, actually, with a husband and wife. And, you know, how do you feel about borrowing to invest in property? Yep, absolutely. On board, let's do it. Okay. How about uh, borrowing to invest in shares? Wife was thumbs up, all good. Uh, But husband, mm, not real comfortable with that. So why is that? And he said, well, because at least with the property, you know, I've got rental income all the time. Even if it doesn't grow, it's still producing income. I'm kind of (laughs) okay with that. Whereas shares... all, all my bet is that it grows in value. And I said, well, that's not quite right because you get dividends on your shares too. And he's, oh, yeah, I hadn't thought about that. I mean, to be fair, the dividends are only every six months, whereas the, the you know your rent's typically once a month. So it's not quite the same degree of regularity. And of course, you need to pay your loan monthly. So I kind of see where he's coming from a little bit. Um, but you know, you gear into investment property and the tenant moves out, you still got to pay, make your loan repayments and it could be empty for a few months, who knows? But your plus is just basic wear and tear on the property. Mm. Whereas you gear into a share portfolio, yeah, look, your dividends move around a little bit, but you're never, you're never going to get zero dividends, if, assuming you've got a portfolio, you're always going to get some income and uh, you know, it's reasonably constant and reasonably, reasonably predictable too. Uh, and of course, in both cases, you're hoping that they're going to grow. So uh, I think gearing into shares... And, and I'm not saying – I'm not talking masses of leverage here, right? So definitely, you know, you want to get some advice and you want to be thinking about what makes sense and how much risk and obviously time frame's important. It's not something you're going to do for one or two years, even three years. Uh, but I think there is a place for gearing for in the right circumstance. And in actual fact, it's a lot less risky than gearing into property. It's more diversified, more predictable income, uh, easier to liquidate if you had to. You haven't got stamp duty and all sorts of other costs associated with a property. I think there's a lot of positives there, yeah. The problem is uh, I see the two – these are the two big problems that I see with gearing into shares. Number one – the educational issue, which you've talked to, um, and a good couple of sessions about understanding how markets work and and all that stuff, that really can be put to bed, that issue as far as I'm concerned. But the second issue is, you know, probably mainly why I didn't actually do these recommendations in my business is because of the liquidity, people might want to change their strategy on an emotional whim where it's actually harder to do that with an investment property because it's more clunky, more cost, more time to sell the property. So that's kind of my vibe on it. You know, absolutely knock yourself out, buy shares, absolutely knock yourself out if you want to gear up or if you want to do some debt recycling because I want to talk about the two differences. But you've just got to make sure your strategy is locked in and you don't get a flashy light in the corner and a new shiny object 
and go, oh no, I want to do something else. I'm going to sell my shares and pay down the loan and rinse and repeat somewhere else. Um, do yeah, you think there's fair. a behavioural uh, risk there? Yeah, there's the potential. I, I have to say of the clients I've worked with, I can probably only think of about one instance where that occurred. And to be fair, it was just a change around. They thought they'd be renters forever and then they decided actually we want to buy a house. Well, um, but that was so, also what I was going to say, Paul, is, you know, you having an advisor in your life can be that, um, you know, true north sounding board accountability that could be worth the couple of grand a year that you pay to have that person go, no, you're not bloody selling. We're doing this. For 10 years, piss off. <laughs> but you do that nicely. <laughs> yeah, it's not, not quite the words I use, but yeah, I hear where you're coming from. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so a lot of people talk about, um, you know, setting up a second mortgage on their house and we'll just make it 100 grand. They've got equity on 100 grand. And you see in the Facebook groups, I want to do debt recycling. What should I do? We have to be clear. Is it a gearing strategy or is it a debt recycling strategy? Because for me, if I'm gearing up, I want growth, baby. Like freaking hundred grand afterpay shares two years ago. Take me to town, baby. Spank me sideways. America, <laughs> pew, pew, all that stuff. I'm not buying afterpay, but you know what I mean? Where a debt recycling, it could be, well, we want to invest in uh, income stocks to just help service the mortgage and we'll get some growth along the way. What's your view of this? Yeah, I don't think they're so different. I think if you're going, your example there, the afterpay or whatever, you're going super aggressive, I wouldn't be gearing to do that. Just do that with your own savings. So for me, and in terms of you know what we would recommend with clients, yeah. um, if you're gearing, it's going to be a diversified portfolio. Um, but you're dead right that in terms of debt recycling, to make that work, there's got to be some income. So I guess just, just to step back for listeners, debt recycling, what that's talking about is the idea is you've got usually a home mortgage uh, and which isn't tax deductible, of course. And so, but you've got some equity in your home. So what you're doing is you borrow against your home. Glenn's example there, a hundred grand. You buy some shares with that. And then the dividends that you get off those shares, you use to make extra home loan repayments. And the train of thought goes that that's attractive because uh, you're reducing the debt that isn't tax deductible and you're probably just paying interest only on, on the other debt. Now, the wrinkle in that is that the banks often, the interest rate is lower on your primary mortgage versus the investment loan. And so sometimes it doesn't produce a huge benefit, but it but it can work. It just depends on the cost of your borrowings and, and how much you can borrow. So it's, it's a bit horses for courses. And I do feel, to be honest, you know, you said about in the Facebook group and that, I think sometimes people kind of perceive it as like a, I don't know, it's free money or it's a magic pudding or it's kind of something bigger than it really is. It, it's actually not really that complex a strategy and it, and mm. it doesn't kind of just rain money on your head. Um, there's, there's kind of not that much to it, you know. But anyway, look, that, that's the mechanism of how it works. And, and yeah, it's just about having a diversified portfolio, but um, it, it can be good for some clients. But it's also like it speaks to stock selection and your strategy, uh, whether you have surplus income at the end of every month or do you need the asset to actually help pay down that loan? Yeah, that's true. I mean, typically we, we'd only be doing it if they did have the surplus income to pay it already because yeah. the dividends are only six monthly, right? I mean, there's the occasional yeah. ETF that does quarterly dividends, but they're pretty lumpy. So, yeah, yeah y- y- we wouldn't be recommending it if you didn't already have the cash flow to meet the, meet the loan. 
we might leave it on um, something I've been wanting to just kind of address for a little while. When we get, uh, and we'll make a number up, okay? We'll make a number up that over the last five years, and we'll use BHP as an example, BHP did 10% return, annualized 10% a year, okay? Mm Mm-hmm. That return, and this is interesting, so when people are looking for equities or ETFs, a lot of the online research will actually tell you the breakdown of that return to growth and growth versus dividends, yeah. Yeah. So that's kind of another feather in your cap to have when looking at investments over the last few years. Like, for example, we used to call Telstra, you know, Australia's best online bank account because you know a highly <laughs> yielding. Yes. <laughs> You'd park money in Telstra and it just print like dividends all day long. So I think that's important. I'd get your view on this, Paul. You know, when looking for your investments, do you want shares or ETFs that are focused on that growth or do you want that, you know, value stock that's going to humming along and just spitting money out to their shareholders? Which comes back to, before you do any investing, figure out your goals. Yeah, it bloody always comes back to goals and it pisses me off, Paul. (laughs) I just want to spray my investing shotgun and invest in everything, but it sucks, doesn't it? (laughs) Yeah, because, I mean, that's what it's all about, you know. If you need income, depends what the objective is, you know. If you need income, then you've got to go the dividend payers. Uh, But if you don't, I mean, there's a good argument, actually, for tilting it towards growth if you don't need the income because the capital gains tax, so long as you hold the asset for more than a year, you pay half the tax on it. So, Yeah, you um, keep the tax down the road. Well, you kick the tax down the road, but also it's a halving of the regular tax rate. So you pay half as much tax on a capital gain. You know, if you made $1,000 capital gain versus $1,000 of income, you'd pay half the tax on the capital gain, assuming you've held the asset for more than a year. So there's a tax rationale for favouring capital gains over income, but it just depends if you require that income. I mean, I always find it interesting, something like Amazon has never paid a dividend. Extraordinary successful stock and people that have owned it for a long time have made squillions, never paid a dividend. So... You know, some people get really tied up in, oh, I've got to buy stocks that pay dividends because that's what my grandfather told me to do. Mm, not really. Yeah, but I think that's a cultural thing. Like you look at America, land of opportunity, you build your business and you can just keep building and, you know, we're capitalist pigs and all that. Let's just keep investing and growing. You know, dividends are a weird Australian phenomenon. Yeah, it's a bit tilted because of the franking credit system that yeah. we have that most others yeah. don't have. Mm. Yeah, true. Good point. Well, we've had a good yarn. Um, If you like what Paul's putting down, uh, you can jump over to his podcast. It's called Financial Autonomy and you can give it a a like, a subscribe and all that crap. Yeah, and actually, Glenn, could I just make a mention? I know you jumped on the other day, but I've got a bit Mm. of a new project going on at the moment uh, called Market Noise. Uh, So we've we've done two episodes so far. So it's on on YouTube. Uh, I'm doing it with Justin Balduri, who some some of your listeners might know. And uh, yeah, we do a a live show on YouTube on a Monday night and then it comes out as a podcast. So still, yeah, check out the Financial Autonomy podcast and you can give it a listen. But yeah, Market Noise, something different, a little bit like what you and I are talking about today. We just jump on and sort of chew the fat on what's mm. interesting stuff that's come up on stock markets uh, for the past week. So, um, yeah, if, if people want to get in on the ground floor, I looked this morning, we had 22 subscribers. So it's literally Woo! right at its infancy. 
So uh, any any Ow. help you can get in there. I dare say if you go on YouTube and search Market Noise, I'm, I'm pretty sure the algorithm hasn't quite got us to the top of the list, so you might have to scroll through a little bit. But, um, you know, that's we're, we're having a bit of fun with that. And uh, But, yeah, right at the outset of that. So if, uh, if, if any of your listeners want to help us out getting a little bit of momentum, that would be awesome. Yeah, I'm sure they will, and I'm sure I'll send you a bill for $3,000 for promoting it on the show. No, no worries, mate. <laughs> <laughs> nah, it's all good. Um, hey, Paul Benson, Financial Autonomy, thank you so much. You can check his podcast out, his book out, and his new uh, banging YouTube show. And that's right, I did jump on there the other day. I trolled you. Well, I said hi or something like that and had a bit of a watch. And no, Thank uh, you. Yeah, just keep encouraged, everyone. That's all you can do because it's more about being encouraged and making an investment right or wrong than not being encouraged and spending your money on crap. True enough. Great way to leave it. All right. Ta-ta. We acknowledge the dark and young people, traditional custodians of the land on which our studio sits, and pay respect to their elders, past and present. We extend that respect to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples who may listen to our podcast. My Millennial Money supports A21, a charity focused on abolishing slavery and human trafficking all over the world. Check out a21.org.au for more info. If you would like some other giving options, or if you're unsure about which charity you can support, head to thelifeyoucansave.org.au. This podcast is for education and entertainment purposes. Any advice is general financial advice only, which does not take into account your objectives, financial situation, or needs. Because of that, you should consider if the advice is appropriate to you and your needs before acting on the information. If you do choose to buy a financial product, read the product disclosure statement and obtain appropriate financial advice tailored to your needs. Simo Interactive, Proprietary Limited, the publisher of the podcast, is an authorized representative of Money Sherpa, Proprietary Limited, which holds financial services license 451289. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code Buttery. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.